following audio is a Sunday sermon from Red Church in Blackburn, Australia. For more information about the church and its ministry, please go to www.redchurch.org.au. We have been looking over the last couple of weeks really into various elements of what it is to live in the kingdom of God. Alex mentioned uh, in the announcement before that one of the reasons that he volunteered for Kids Hope was to be part of the breaking out of the kingdom of God on earth. The kingdom of God is a really interesting topic to get your head around in a way of looking at it is it's like a complete different set of rules has descended on a country or a place across the world without us realizing it. Whenever we go to another country, there's a few little mental calculations that you have to make. If you go to a country that's completely different from Australia, that's easy to do because everything looks different, smells different, is different. But when you go to another country, which is a lot like Australia, they may drive on the other side of the road. And if you've ever done that, uh, I remember pulling onto the wrong side of the road and having traffic rushing towards me. Uh, And in a second, you've got to recalibrate. We're so used to stepping into these patterns. Our brain goes on autopilot. And so, so many of the rules that we, we, we follow, we don't realize that we're doing. I... Uh, grew up in an environment where my parents uh, were involved in lots of student ministry. My dad was at RMIT, and our house was filled with different students from all over the world. And uh, one young woman who babysat me and my brother a lot um, was from Singapore. And the first time that my mum had sort of arranged to meet her, they told her, hey, she just arrived, and they said, I'll meet you on this particular corner in the city. And when they went to go and meet her, they saw her, and she was doing this. And they're doing a U-turn to get a park, and they're just watching her, and they're thinking, is this person a bit strange? What on earth's going on? And they pulled over and said, you know, is everything okay? And she goes, no standing sign. Um... (laughs) And she'd come from Singapore, where Singapore is a very rules-based country. It's an orderly country. There's different rules. Um, at that time, I don't know if you still can, I think it's, chewing gum is banned in Singapore. Um, so she'd come with still, in her mind, the Singapore rules of how the, the kingdom, for want of a better term, of Singapore runs. She was now in the kingdom of Australia. And one of the weird things about the kingdom is that we are now living by a different set of rules. But our bodies and our minds and our habits are often attuned to the worldly set of rules. So last week, we looked into some of those dynamics of the kingdom. The fact that God uses tests, trials, and temptations to shape us. And that in the midst of those tests, trials, and temptations, there's actually gifts to be found. Blessings to be unlocked. So we're going to dig into one that I just tantalized you with at the end of last week's presentation was that when you go through a test or a trial, that there is a blessing to be released. And I want to talk about that blessing. And I want to talk about how important in the kingdom of God is the concept of generosity. But let's pray. Father, I thank you that your kingdom has broken out into the world. It's breaking out all around us. Our eyes are often not attuned to it because our eyes are set to the frequency of the world. But Father, I thank you that 
Your reign is evident when we put on your glasses and view the world through your eyes. And so God, as we dig into your scriptures today, give us new lenses. Help us to be generous people. Help us to be generous to each other in this community. Help us to be generous to those around us. I particularly just feel a real weight this morning, Father, to to thank you for the generosity of Ngunnawanning Seventh-day Adventist Church, who lets us have this space. I particularly want to stand with them today. I want to pray your blessing upon them, upon their leadership. May you do something new and wonderful through that community. Thank you for them letting us be here. And that so much of what's happened in this church and the growth that's happened, particularly here at Mideast, is because they've just been generous and hospitable. So we pray that. And we pray too, Father, that after this we're going to go, many of us, and have Hospitality Sunday, enjoy the generosity of others, the generosity of sharing time, food, space, and place. So may we be a people of generosity in your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to begin with a scripture. It comes from... 2 Corinthians. I love that when that stuff happens, because people on the podcast are like, what is going on? Which is probably what happened when I was walking up and down the stage with that uh, illustration. Okay, so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, which is a Greek city in the sort of Greco-Roman world. And he's talking about giving. He's giving the example of the church in Macedonia and the Macedonians and their generosity in the midst of a trial. Now, often this is taught about financial generosity. Often this is a a text that's given when we talk about giving to the church. I don't want to just talk about financial generosity today, although that's important. I want to talk about an overwhelming, overarching view of generosity. And let's let Paul and the Scriptures and God's Word speak into this. Paul says in verse 6, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whosoever, who, sorry, whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Mm. <laughs> and God is able to bless you abundantly. Getting my highlighter out there. Highlight the word abundantly. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound, abundance and abound are linked, in every good work. Good works are essential for these believers who the church has come out of the Jewish world. The Jewish world has this concept of mitzvah. You probably heard the term bar mitzvah. A mitzvah is a good deed. A good deed is something which puts the world back together. Good deeds can't win us our salvation, but good deeds are the fruit of our salvation. As it is written, continuing, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower... And bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. 
Now, when we think about generosity, we tend to have a fixed idea in our head, which is linked to this passage. The church in Jerusalem went through a famine. In the book of Acts, we have the first example of the church giving, in a sense, aid to a particular region which was suffering through a lack of food. So that's partially what's going on here, and that's what we tend to think of generosity handing money to the Salvation Army person, knocking on your door at the Red Shield Appeal, putting in a few coins in that little box that may be at the fish and chip store for whatever charity is being asked for. Maybe regularly you might give to a sponsor child. All that is part of generosity. But to understand the worldview of the Christian in Corinth reading this, we need to understand that there's a whole bunch of other mental images going on in their head. Generosity for them is linked to part of life. And part of life is everywhere, whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile or a pagan who doesn't follow the God of Israel, you are involved in various systems of sacrifice and temple worship. So you give, and if you don't give, things can go really bad. Certain cities in the Greco-Roman world, when enemies came against them and there were kinds of sieges and warfare, they would go through this inventory of, hang on, were we not giving enough? If an individual went through a particular trouble or trial, the death of a loved one, disease, failure in life, you went and said, hang on, what have we been actually giving to the gods? Because the world surrounding the church was a world built around kinds of worship, kinds of temples. The scriptures and the people of God are called out of an environment in that region, in the Levant, in the Middle East, around Iraq and Iran and Syria and these places, what we call them today, where all kinds of different temples had grown up. And because people did not have revelation of what the various gods that they worshipped, they had no revelation like we have in Scripture. They had to imagine what these gods were like. And so here's a picture from the Sumerian world that we have from back then. And you've got a few people coming to a king, but there's this dual meaning going on here. When they looked at the stars and the sun and so on, they saw them as gods. And the only way they could work out what these gods that they wanted to keep happy, to keep the world moving and going forward and not to suffer misfortune, the only image they had of a god was to look at their own kings and queens. Kings and queens which they worshipped and brought food to and gifts in order to Get favor. In many places in the world today, if you're a local official and you become the governor of a region or the head of agriculture or the military, you'll find your door lined up with people willing to lavish upon you gifts. Here's a car. Here's $100,000. Here's free entry into this university degree for all your kids. Behind these requests is a bartering system that if I do this for you, you'll do this for me. And that's what it was like in the ancient world. And so temple worship in the ancient world 
becomes something where people are trying to satiate the needs of gods. Growing out of this, then, in the nations surrounding Israel, are these incredible temples of worship. This is a ziggurat in Ur, in modern-day Iraq. You can see the giant temple complexes, the different staircases going up. This is a human-made mountain. They believed gods existed on the mountains. This concept of going on the mountains to meet God, you see this in the Old Testament as Moses goes on Sinai. So they created these fake mountains, ziggurats. You can also see the story of Babel in this. And people would bring vast stores of seed and grain and animals to sacrifice to the gods in order to get something back. But John Walton notes something happens in this system of sacrifice. He writes this, the gods become codependent on people. The gods are exhaustible. They, they need food because they have to eat it. They need your gifts to be sustained. And the people need the gods to keep the whole system going and to make the crops go. So there's this codependent relationship happens where you have to feed the gods and you want the gods to do something for you. He continues, high levels of insecurity and anxiety plagued the system. So we have a social system plagued by codependency, insecurity, and anxiety, built around sacrifice. And so what we see in this is actually not that much different to today. In fact, it's the same as today. The world, and by world, I'm using the biblical term, not not planet Earth, but actually the systems of the world which are not under God's kingdom, the world is built around the myth of scarcity. The people giving grain to the gods realize that there's not enough. These gods are actually exhaustible. I better go and give them grain because I want my farm or my region to benefit because I'm afraid that that other region over there will benefit. And if I don't do that, my kids are going to starve. And I need to curry favor with those gods and give them stuff because there's not enough in the world to go around. And so scarcity drove the ancient world and this system of sacrifice was built around the ancient world. And when uh, Dallas Willard says that if sacrifice is happening in any system, it means that someone's doing something wrong. If you have to sacrifice, it means that someone's sinning or something's broken in the system. So this is a system of sacrifice. Now, it's probably hard for us to see how that system is actually related to our world. But I want to make the argument this morning that basically little has changed. And we live in a sacrificial system of scarcity, which is plagued by codependency, anxiety and insecurity. In fact, we have a very similar mentality because we're living under the myth of scarcity as people in the ancient world. Stephen Covey says this about the mentality of scarcity. Most people are deeply scripted in what I call the scarcity mentality. They see life as only having so much, as though there were only one pie out there. So therefore, they're always comparing always competing. They give their energies to possessing things or other people in order to increase their sense of worth. 
There's not enough attention to go around. So when that person at work got that praise, and I was actually involved in that project, but no one mentioned me, what does that say about me? And what do I think of that other person? There's only so much time you have in life. So you better suck the marrow out of life and get it all done now because at one day you'll be old and not able to do all this stuff. So just go and recreate and enjoy and experience because there's only so much to go around. Your kids may not have had the experiences that you had, so you want to give your kids stuff and you want to fill their lives with experiences and give them everything because there's only so much to go around. That person can't have success because if people in the room praise that person, what are they saying about me if I don't have that thing? Ultimately, fear lies behind the myth of scarcity. Myth, fear lies behind the myth of scarcity. It's not actually scarcity in itself that we fear that there's not enough and then we have to move to get attention, to get relationship, to get money, to get possessions, to get security. We have to fight and compete and get these things because we're afraid that if we don't move and do it, we live in a world where there's only limited piles of this stuff, so we'd better you know, shake our backsides and get moving and get about that stuff. And there can be super active versions of this where you're just pushing everything and you become a driven person or there's sort of defeat passive versions of this. Well, I know that's the thing, but I can't do that. And the person saying, I'm awesome, I want the attention, see me, is wanting attention. And the person saying, I'm not good enough, I can't do it. Can I please have a compliment to make me feel better? (laughs) Same thing, myth of scarcity. The scarcity myth creates a world and a life where we must must continually seek more, always achieving, always consuming, always building our lives. You've got to create it. You've got to crush it. You've got to build a sense of self, craft a sense of identity. Because if you don't, are you going to be seen? Are you going to be safe? Are you going to have a sense of masculinity, affirmed in your femininity, appreciated at your work, respected in your social circle, have things to do, money in the bank, the catalogue of experiences. But ultimately what happens is, whilst we look at the ancient world and their ziggurats and think, wow, that's just another reality out there in Iraq those mounds of rock collecting dust and sand. But really, the system hasn't changed that much because the scarcity myth means that you or people around you get sacrificed. If you haven't worked it out already, Australians are absolutely run ragged. We're run ragged even when we're just sitting still now. Constantly. 
having to consume information, constantly going through our head of what we need to do, all the different options before us. We are a people who, even when we're sitting still, in a sense, we're still spiritually and psychically running. Our kids are exhausted. Our kids don't even know how to play anymore. So filled up with opportunities. So filled with sport. No one plays sport. In the past, you play cricket and football or basketball and soccer, one sport a season. Now you've got kids playing four sports and the clarinet and dancing <laughs> and learning Portuguese with a Brazilian dialect. You have kids given everything because you have to have it all. Because if your kid does not do this, what's going to happen to their future? Because you've got a scarcity myth. And what happens is we're exhausted and we keep running and we're filling ourselves with energy drinks. And our phones give us the myth that we can get more done, but they just create more scarcity myth in our mind. Or you've got other people who delay responsibility and you have them going about it and people are doing stuff for them and they're pushing that sacrifice onto the people around them. That's what happens when the kids who have given everything, every opportunity, then get old. Mum and dad still have to keep doing everything even when they're in their 70s. This is one of those things in which secularism comes in. Secularism is ultimately the idea of the profane, that the world is flat, that there's not a whole lot out there, and you just got to get the marrow out of life. So you run around like a hairy goat trying to do that. Do goats who are hairy run around? That's another question for another day. There's a really interesting book written about three years ago by one of Canada's top religious sociologists. And he actually did all this research... And he said, actually, there's this myth out there, like, people in the West hate church, hate church. Yep, there's a little segment who do hate church, don't like Christianity. But he realized that there was just this big, huge group in the middle who actually were interested in God, do wonder about the big stuff. Many grew up with a Christian heritage, but actually are just too busy. And so the title of his book was, Canadians, uh, no, it's not that Canadians don't like God, they're just too busy. So we have a thing now where we have huge, vast groups of young people leaving the church. Not because they want to, not because they're throwing it all in and reading new atheist books. Sunday sport, study, pressure. That's just too much. How do you fit a life of faith around that? That's not true of young people. That's true of older people, all different ages. There's always someone getting sacrificed in a temple system, ancient or modern, driven by the scarcity myth. In contrast, what Paul is talking about is the kingdom is abundant. We saw that word in the middle. God is able to bless you abundantly. God is able to bless you abundantly. God is able to bless you abundantly. Do we really believe that? Generosity is an investment in the kingdom. Generosity is when you start to live your song according to the tune of abundance, not scarcity. Covey goes on. Covey says, the abundance mentality flows out of a deep inner sense of personal wealth, sorry, personal worth, 
and securities. Let me say that again. The abundance mentality flows out of a deep inner sense of personal worth and security. But you can only have that personal worth and security in a world of endless options and fear. Everything. Like, a lot, the other day, Credit Suisse came out again and said that Australians are the richest people in the world. But every single article you'll see in the paper is like, economic doom is coming to Australia. We're rich. We're the richest people in the world. But don't enjoy it. Because soon it's all going to burn down and it's going to be the walking dead. And it's going to be Mad, Mad Max is coming. That movie was prophetic. So while you're on your boat you know, sweat and shiver in fear. So you're just not going to get a sense of personal worth and security from within. You're not going to get self-esteem because yourself can't give you esteem. By the way, self-esteem is an absolute, like about 30-year-old, utter myth. Okay, one second. I'm just going to this for one second. Esteem throughout the whole of history in every nature was when someone did something wonderful and people said, man... She is good. She just killed a lion. We will give her esteem. Okay? You can't go, killed a lion. Esteem has to come from an external source. Okay? And there's people like, they're not even killing lions. Like, I'm in my bedroom. I'm special. Why? You know? My friend who was a teacher said to his class... Don't let anyone tell you're special, because if you're all special, none of you are special. (laughs) Okay? So, esteem can only come externally. Now, don't look to others for esteem. If you get that, that's a byproduct. Only God can give you esteem. Through dying on the cross, and actually telling you that you're a sinner, and that actually His righteousness now stands in the place of where your sin was, and you're now made right by Him. That's where your worth comes from. That the God of the universe died for you. And that he loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's an act of grace. Walter Brueggemann says this. The gospel story of abundance asserts that we originated in the magnificent, inexplicable love of God, of a God who loved the world into generous being. Creation. I mean, this God starts. At least it's, okay, it's good. Be fruitful. Multiply. This is a world teeming with Abundance. And the story of abundance says that our lives will end in God and that this well-being cannot be taken from us. When we know about our beginnings and our endings, then creates a different kind of present tense for us. Stop. That's key. Present tense is key. When you live in a scarcity mentality, you've got to all do it now. You've got to live in a permanent now of hurry. Where it's all got to happen now because you're going to die and Australia's going to turn into Mad Max. So enjoy it all now. Download that endless Netflix. Uber eats a hamburger because we're going to become Mad Max. Okay? So, this is a different kind of present tense where you live in peace in the moment because God is in charge and he is abundant. And even if misfortune falls on you, he can give you joy in that. I ain't preaching a prosperity gospel message this morning. I'm preaching a kingdom message this morning that regardless of what's happening in your external circumstances, God will still give you joy. And this is going to the kingdom of God. And whatever sufferings we have now will go in a flash compared to an eternity with God, with heaven and earth reunited. That wasn't me looking at the preaching. That was a look at me. I was getting an abundance of water in my face. 
We can live according to an ethic whereby we are not driven, controlled, anxious, frantic, or greedy, precisely because we are sufficiently at home and at peace to care about others because we have been cared for. You don't need to be hurried. You don't need to be anxious. And you can't will yourself out of that stuff. Only God can take you out of it. Here's a table. There's a bunch of stuff on there. It's 11 o'clock. I'm not going to go through it all. Real quick. (laughs) Limitless God. Limited humans. In the kingdom of God, abundance versus earthly scarcity. God is limitless. You are limited in the kingdom of God. In earthly scarcity, limited humans who think they're limitless following limited idols. Kingdom of God, abundance is about trust. Scarcity is about fear. Kingdom of God, abundance is about an eternal perspective. Earthly scarcity is about a here and now perspective. Kingdom of God is about God's metrics. Scarcity is about human metrics. Kingdom of God is about joy. Earthly scarcity is about anxiety. Kingdom of God is about release. Earthly scarcity is about control. Kingdom of God is about generosity. Earthly scarcity is about sacrifice, martyrdom. (sighs) Kingdom of God, abundance is about blessing. Earthly scarcity is about competing. And our entire culture is built on competing. Oh, we love inclusivity and diversity and inclusion. No, you don't. You've created a giant competition that's basically Mad Max Thunderdome. Why is this Mad Max theme coming out? (laughs) Jesus said, freely you have received, then freely give. God is generous and abundant. And we then are creating the image of God, remade in Christ-likeness. So we now must be defined by ourselves being abundantly generous. So kingdom riches are given to be shared, not controlled. Controlling them changes their nature. The money is almost spiritually changed when you're attempting to control it and turn it into an idol. Release it and it changes your nature. Let me read that one more time. Kingdom riches are given to be shared, not controlled. Controlling them changes their nature. Releasing them changes our nature. Now, the easy thing here is to look at money. But what about attention? Who are you giving your attention to? This service will end, and most of you will do this mental thing. Go, who's here am I going to talk to? Who's going to feed something into me? Who makes me feel good? And you're going to plot, without even thinking about it, a little path out of here, connections, depends if you're an extrovert or introvert. And you're going to actually look through the lens of scarcity at a social situation. You actually are given the kingdom richness of having a social being. You are a social being through your words, actions. Intense can actually bring kingdom life here and now. But the key caveat of this is generosity is not plugging people into you, but into God's inexhaustible abundance. If you go from here and you get the message that, okay, I've just got to do so much more. I've got to give away absolutely everything I own. And I've now got to spend, the t- I was going to go to the hospitality dinner, but now, thanks Mark, I'm going to be speaking to 70 people after the service and seeing how they are while my energy levels just go and I'm just you know, exhausted. I'm not talking about martyrdom here. 
I'm not talking about rescuing. I'm not talking about you, through generosity, actually putting yourself up as a little idol. It's me. Because many of us, particularly raised in the church, and I can put my hand up to this, at times, give because there's a sense that we want to be affirmed. The biggest breakthrough, I think, one of the biggest breakthroughs I've had in ministry is when I've realized that it's not about me being this resource to people. Actually, I'm not even that much fantastic because I'm just a flawed human being. It's actually, my job is to point people to God. So that doesn't mean endlessly giving everything to I've got nothing left for my family, for me, and I am an exhausted heap. Generosity is plugging people into the abundant God, not the exhaustible human being. Kingdom's generosity's companion is secrecy. Kingdom generosity's companion is secrecy. In Matthew chapter 6, it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets or Instagram, as the hypocrites do in synagogues and online and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's a whole bunch of stuff which shouldn't happen in secrecy in the Christian life, but generosity and secrecy are linked because it's the way that you're doing it for the kingdom and not for yourself. Jesus understands the psychology of human beings and that we can so flip this and turn into a Messiah complex. So when you pursue generosity, you need to do it with the company of secrecy. Kingdom generosity is spiritual warfare in a society of scarcity and competing. Some of you are in environments where actually the kingdom key to unlock what is going on in that place of oppression, of negativity, of actually strongholds of thought and the enemy is actually to practice generosity. When you practice generosity, you're bringing into a space or a place actually kingdom rule. Now, it's already there, but you're, in a sense, partnering with it. And when you partner with it, you bring it into this being that it's it's seen in incredible ways. Some of us need to see and pray and ask God where are environments where we've been in a sense of spiritual battle and how can we use generosity to as a weapon in spiritual warfare against what the enemy wants to do. And if you think about the enemy, Satan's fall happens because he wants, he has a scarcity of glory. God has the glory, but Satan wants some as well. So when you practice generosity, you're going the opposite spirit of our age, and that is spiritual warfare. And lastly, and these two are linked, kingdom generosity changes Atmosphere. Kingdom generosity changes atmosphere. Some of you come here and your home situation is at the moment a stronghold of negativity and it does not represent the kingdom. Some of you come here and your workplaces are a place 
which does not reflect the kingdom. Maybe even some of us come here and our small groups are a place which is not reflecting the kingdom. When you partner with God, acting like him in abundant generosity, you change atmospheres. That relationship, which is totally, feels like, you're like, what am I putting into this for? Maybe you need to actually change that up and approach that with an attitude of generous abundancy. Maybe that workplace, which is characterized by competition and scarcity, is actually a place that's going to be fundamentally changed by a revolutionary sell of secret, generous abundance. And we have to realize that when we're talking the kingdom of God, that there is stuff that can happen in the spiritual realm that pushes back on the strongholds and territorial spirits of the enemy when we actually step into tune with the kingdom and what God is doing, and generosity is one of those things. So what we're going to do now, let's stand. I'm going to get the band to come up. And we're going to recognize that, first of all, I just want to declare that we do not follow a God who is limited. That we actually, we follow a God who is limitless. That we are exhausted as human beings, but follow a God who is inexhaustible. That we don't live in a reality of scarcity and competition Those who follow Jesus are invited into a new kind of living that has been breaking out into the world since Jesus came into the world, which is how the world will end of abundant generosity. God promises his children that he will give them good things. So God, we just ask you to come amongst us now. Holy Spirit, come. Move amongst us. Move into our strongholds of competition, comparison, scarcity. Move into those places where we've created little strongholds based around attention, money, praise. Where we've controlled people, things, achievements. Help us to realize, Father, that you gave so much away. You gave your son on the cross. So that we don't have to sacrifice. You've made the ultimate sacrifice. So we now just have to be generous. We now just have to live out of your abundance. So Holy Spirit, come and particularly talk to individuals. Come into our hearts in those places unseen. So I'm just going to ask the Spirit to come. Do your work.